Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word comes from, yet everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Everything from mountaintop beauty and deep forest to meth heads and extreme prejudice. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet to the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed downright unbelievable and tormenting historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from hauntings to cryptic creatures that show up and wreak havoc on their homesteads. The worst creature, though, may be man himself. I, being born and raised in these Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond a pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey through these mountains, where things are not always as they seem. I guarantee you it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Season 2 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. How you doing, my good friends? Thank you again for stopping by today. I've always had a particular place in my heart for those families that lose their loved ones to an absolute mystery that they or nobody else can seem to solve. I also have the same affection for those who've been found deceased and remain unidentified. There are many of these cases across our great nation. And when I first looked into it, I found it quite shocking at the sheer number of them that exist. It seems that to solve these cases would be a mere task of simply matching the missing to the unidentified does in the system. Believe me when I tell you that that's a tremendous time-consuming effort. There are just so many on both ends that it seems a near impossibility when you jump into it. But once in a great while, somebody, while coming through the doe network and the missing unidentified network, hits the right combination of information and the family finds a loved one that they can bring back home. It's truly bittersweet to say the least because it's not how they wanted them to return, but at least they did return. Sit on down there and let me tell you a story that took years upon years to fully unfold. In the rolling foothills of the Appalachian Mountains near Georgetown, Kentucky, <clears throat> on May 17, 1968, Wilbur Riddle had gone to Eagle Creek, which runs along the Interstate 75 in Scott County, he was there to look for glass insulators left behind by workmen repairing phone lines in the area. <clears throat> he planned to paint them up and sell them as curio decorations. <clears throat> Excuse me. Many of you, my good friends, may think this sounds odd, while some may immediately recognize that it's a pretty common thing. I would venture to guess that would depend on your age. I'm familiar with it because my mother had some of these things. But anyway, about 11 o'clock that morning, while <clears throat> poking around near an intersection of I-75 and US-25, he found an odd-looking bag with some, in some bushes just over the fence <clears throat> beside the highway, and it was a canvas bag. 
It was a pretty big bag made out of green canvas, kind of like a bag that you'd keep your tent in when you fold it all up. The bag was all wrapped up with a thin cord. Now that piqued Mr. Riddle's curiosity, so he pulled the bag loose from the underbrush, but it got away from him, rolled down a hill to the edge of a creek in the bottom. So whatever it was, <clears throat> that thing he thought was pretty heavy. Mr. Riddle walked down to the bag and tried to pull it open. That's when he noticed a horrible odor coming from inside it. He immediately ran to his truck and sped to the nearest payphone where he called Bobby Vance, the Scott County Sheriff, and I don't blame him. And folks, this is way on before everybody had cell phones. <clears throat> but a few minutes later, Mr. Riddle was showing this bag to not only the Sheriff Vance, but the Deputy Jimmy Williams and Deputy Coroner Kenneth Grant. The bag, well, it contained a decomposing body of what appeared to be a young girl. She was naked except for the towel of some sort that was wrapped around her head. She had obviously been dead for quite some time. She was doubled up in the bag. <clears throat> the right hand was clenched like a fist. A search of the immediate area never turned up another sprig of evidence. The body was then taken to St. Joseph Hospital in Lexington where Deputy Coroner Grant and his assistants determined that the girl was Caucasian, five feet, one inch tall, and weighed about 110 to 115 pounds, with an estimated age of between 16 and 19 years old. Short reddish-brown hair and no identifying marks, scars, or piercings. <clears throat> she had not even been shot, or, as a matter of fact, she had not even been pregnant. She had been dead for about two weeks, they thought. With diligence and luck, a single fingerprint was recovered from her badly decomposed body. And she was soon known as Tent Girl by reporters with the Kentucky Post and Time Star <clears throat> because she had been found in a tent like a in a tent like bag. As with any investigation, the first step was to figure out just who the victim was. <clears throat> with that usually comes a pretty clear picture of who, what, when, where, and how the of the whole thing went down. The search for her identity was helped along by Scott County Attorney Virgil Pryor, who called in <clears throat> coroner Dr. Frank Cleveland from, or to perform a more a complete autopsy. Dr. Cleveland found a slight discoloration of her skull and no evidence of poisons or toxins in, in any kind of toxic materials at all, matter of fact. Overall, the evidence suggested that she had been knocked unconscious by a blow to the head, then stuffed in the bag and tied up, only to die by suffocation later. That seemed to explain why her hand was drawn into a fist. Maybe she was struggling to get out or move or something. Sheriff Vance and his men started searching for anybody that might have been in the area of the body in the past few weeks, but the investigation went right into a ditch and found absolutely nothing. Two weeks later, the Kentucky Post and Times Star asked Harold Musser, a patrolman and sketch artist with the Covington Police Department, to produce a portrait of the tent girl from the photographs of the body taken during the autopsies. After a week of studying the photos, Mr. Musser drew up a portrait that was then published statewide in an attempt to identify the poor girl, and uh, lead after lead started turning up. But the police spent hours digging through letters and following up on leads. But 
thought one of them went anywhere. The problem was that the tent girl was very average in her appearance with no singular striking feature that stood out. She was like the girl next door and literally hundreds of missing girls fit what little was known about her description. The lead in the one, well, one particular lead looked promising, a missing girl from Pasadena, Maryland named Doris Dittmer. But despite matching dental records, the lead was bust when Miss Dittmer turned out to be alive and well and living in Bradford, Pennsylvania. While police were still checking the Dittmer lead, a truck driver reported seeing a pair of hitchhikers on US-25 near where the body had been found, about two weeks before it was found. He said that he was driving through the <clears throat> rain about two and a half miles north of Sadieville when he passed them, a young man and woman wearing clothes too light for the weather. A phone call later from a retired heavy equipment operator confirmed the truck driver's story. The operator had picked up two hitchhikers, a man and a woman, on 14, April 14th near the spot where the body was found. The young woman was wearing a short dress, gray sweater, and light blouse, and the operator was positive it was the same person in the police sketch. The young man was described as having hippie-like hair, and both had camping packs with them. <clears throat> as he drove south, the young couple kept arguing with each other, and finally, he pulled over and threw him out. I guess his tolerance was limited on the arguing front. He last saw him hitchhiking back north towards Georgetown. Police soon received an anonymous call that claimed the towel found wrapped around the tent girl had been cut from a roll at the restroom of Noble's Restaurant in nearby Corinth three to five weeks before the body was found and that part of the girl's shoe had been found near there. This only makes sense to us folks that are old enough to remember those cloth towel dispensers with the continuous towel pulls on them. They used to be all over the place, but I haven't seen one of those things in many years now. But Sheriff Vance and Deputy Williams drove out to check out the lead in the restaurant and cut a piece of towel for comparison that would have been found with the tent girl, they thought and showed the police sketch to the good folks around there and see if anybody remembered seeing her. But once again, not one had <clears throat> anybody had at all, and the shoe that was supposedly found never turned up either. Once tested for comparison, the towel from the restaurant didn't match the towel found with the body, so there was another bag over the head punch in the face on the investigation. And to ice the cake for it all, it turned out that the towel found with the body wasn't even a towel. The FBI lab in Washington identified it as part of a baby's diaper, specifically a bird's eye diaper. The same lab had performed tests on the canvas bag cord and held, that held the body, and the test indicated that everything was of standard materials handled by a large number of manufacturers and distributors, which made it not like, likely to... Like, not unlike finding the needle in a haystack. Well, matter of fact, probably not like that. Probably like finding the needle in another stack of needles. And things just didn't look good at all at this time, folks. Just as all the leads seemed to dry up, a new one came in. <clears throat> in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, another girl was found dead under 
<clears throat> very similar circumstances. The thought of the madman running around killing girls probably popped into everybody's mind about then, and I'd say they felt pretty helpless to stop him unless he messed up this time. Maybe. Maybe he had. You never know. They were able to identify her as Candace Clothier, and she was 16 when she disappeared from her home in Philadelphia at about 8.30 on the evening of Saturday, March 9th. Although more than 300 people <clears throat> participated in the search for she wasn't found until shortly after 5 a.m. on April 13th when three fishermen discovered her body in the Neshinny River in Bucks County, just a few miles north of Philadelphia. The body was tied up in a bag that had been washed up in a small island in the creek. Her body was taken to Lower Bucks County Hospital for an autopsy. The canvas bag had been tied around her neck and she had a wool sweater wrapped around her head. From her state of decomposition and the mud encrusted in the bag, it was obviously she'd been dead for some time. According to the newspaper article, the body was never directly identified, but the clothing was identified by her father, Elmer, and her sister, Susan. By late June, <clears throat> Philadelphia detectives have interviewed over a thousand people but still had no good leads as to who had killed Candace. But when they saw reports about the tent girl case, there was too much of a resemblance in the circumstances between the two murders to be ignored. In early July, Chief Fergion of Philadelphia drove to Kentucky to compare notes. Not only had both girls been tied up and disposed of in the same manner, but both matched closely in comparisons of weight, height, hair, and body structure. Unfortunately, while it was <clears throat> undeniable that the two cases were probably linked, knowing that still didn't help solve either one of them. As the months dragged on and the case files for each grew bigger and the leads continued to dry up. By November 1st, there was a very few possibilities left to be looked at. A sketch, <clears> the <throat> second sketch of the tent girls made by Harold Musser. This new portrait was distributed and produced <clears throat> very few leads, but these, uh, well, they again failed to help the investigation. By May of 1969, Scott County Police tried one last time. An article detailing the tent girl case was run nationally along with a new portrait of or in <clears throat> Master Detective magazine in the hopes that a reader might have information that would help the investigation. If this didn't work, it looked like the case was, well, headed for the cold case files. And unfortunately, that's exactly what happened. The young woman remained unidentified, and she was buried in a county-owned section of the Georgetown Cemetery with a gravestone that identified her simply as Tent Girl. Then in <clears throat> late 1997, Todd Matthews, the son-in-law of none other than Wilbur Riddle, the man who found the Tent Girl's body in the first place and who had a long-standing interest in the mystery, created a <clears throat> synopsis of the Tent Girl's story. Mr. Matthews was able to use it to spread the story and police sketches in a further attempt to try to identify the tent girl. In February 1998, Mr. Matthews contacted a woman on the internet named Roseberry Westbrook who was trying to locate her missing sister. Her sister had gone missing after a short visit with family in Florida in December 1967. 67. <clears throat> Wouldn't you know it? 
Pictures of the missing sister bore a striking resemblance to the police sketches of the tent girl. Both matched closely in height and weight, both similar hurry, and both women had a gap between their front teeth, which is a common feature in Westbrook's family. So, pictures and all of the information they had were handed over to Sheriff Bobby Hammonds by Todd and Rosemary, who were both convinced that they had identified the tent girl. In fact, the information was so compelling that it was decided by the powers that be to exhume the tent girl's body to collect her DNA to compare with the family of the missing sister. <clears throat> On May 2, 1998, the tent girl was indeed exhumed and sent to a laboratory in Frankfort, Kentucky for examination by Dr. Emily Craig, who was a forensic anthropologist and state medical examiner. Dr. Craig then closely compared details of the tent girl to the <clears throat> details and pictures of the missing sister. During the new examination, Dr. Craig estimated the age of tent girls at death to be between 20 and 30 years old. Previous estimates made in 1968 <clears throat> thought that she would have been around 16 to 19. The age of the missing sister at the time of disappearance was 24, falling within the new age estimates of the tent girl. However, the <clears throat> real truth lied in pudding known as DNA. An arm bone with an elbow joint and the lower jaw and teeth from the tent girl's remains were sent to a lab corp in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina to have the DNA sample extracted. The DNA was compared to DNA sample from Rosemary Westbrook. The tests were... Of course, it, it took time, so on April 22, 1998, the results were in. An announcement was made that the DNA testing had confirmed what all had hoped. Tent Girl was indeed Rosemary Westbrook's missing sister. Her name was Barbara Ann Hackman Taylor and was finally returned to her family after 40 years. When Barbara Taylor lost contact with her family in 1967, she was living in Lexington with her husband, Earl Taylor. She was 24 years old with <clears throat> three children, one of them eight months old. That would explain where the diaper was found, found with her body might have come from. Earl Taylor worked with <clears throat> carnivals and was a truck driver, which led him to a good deal of travel. At the time of Barbara's disappearance, no search had been made or any missing person reports filed in Lexington for the simple reason that Earl Taylor had told her family that she had run away and her family didn't know the Taylors were living in Kentucky. A missing persons report had been filed in Miami, Florida, where Barbara's family had last seen her. At that time, <clears throat> she had visited her family in Florida. Barbara had told them that she and Earl would be moving to North Carolina, and police searched for her there with no results. Nobody knows why Barbara never let her family know that she and Earl were in, in Lexington. To top that off, Rosemary had tried to file a missing persons report over the phone with the Lexington Police Department on October 31, 1995 as part of the <clears throat> her ongoing search for her sister. She talked to an officer, Lily, in the missing persons homicide department and answered the questions, but nothing ever came of it. On her first visit to Lexington later, she told a TV reporter about the report when he checked on it. <clears throat> he could find no evidence that the report had ever been filed. It seems that Officer Lilly never filled out a report because it was Halloween and the call was a bit odd to say the least and that in itself is just plain sad. Maybe if the report had been filed, 
Barbara Taylor could have been identified in 1995. Then on March 17, 2010, Bucks County District Attorney David Hackler announced the official end of the Constance Clother case. New evidence had led investigators to what they felt were the final answers regarding Candace's death. These answers would clarify the relationship between her case and <clears throat> that of the tent girl. New information came to the police thanks to a 2005 TV program about the cold case files that <clears throat> profiled the Candace Clothier case. The police were soon contacted by a woman that was able to identify the bag Candace was found in as one that had belonged to her. Her husband had asked to borrow it, yanked it up, took it outside to a waiting car, and then disappeared for several hours. These details led investigators to what they believed to be the accurate detailing of the events of the night of March 9th, <clears throat> 1968. On that night, Candace left home around 8 p.m. to walk to a trackless trolley, <clears throat> but accepted a car ride from two young men described as slightly older than her, and it was then believed that she recognized one of the men and trusted him. Uh, she was them promptly driven to a deserted area off Decatur Road near Northwest Philadelphia Airport <clears throat> where teenagers gathered to do what, you know, teenagers do, which is a little bit of everything. That's where she, uh, whether she wanted to or not, was injected with a lethal dose of illegal drug. One of these two young men had noted history of forcibly injecting both people and animals with illegal drugs. It was thought that she was drug with the idea of making her less apt to fight the young men's desires, in which case the overdose was likely accidental. But whether it was the case of manslaughter or murder, <clears throat> the overdose that killed Candace, well, we don't know, I guess. The two young men that drove her body to the house of the third man, whose wife provided the black bag Candace was found in, and she was stuffed in, in the bag and dropped into a Nishini Creek in the chain bridge, or from the chain bridge in Northampton, just upstream from Bucks County Community College. This investigation <clears throat> has identified all the people believed to be involved in it, but the names of these people were withheld from the public because all are now dead and as such can't defend themselves and be punished. And revealing their names would do nothing but burden their families. The family of Candace Clothier was told in their names and knows the full story and probably that is the most important thing I guess of it all. So despite all the coincidental timing of the murder shortly after that of the tent girl and the similarity in the method <clears throat> involved it seems that there was no madman serial killer running around knocking off girls after all. Finally a cause of death was never really determined in the tent girl case. It always it's always been treated as a murder just because of the suspicious way that the body was dumped. It probably don't surprise anybody that Earl Taylor was now the number one suspect in the murder, but he died of cancer in 1987, so proving him guilty will probably never happen or be near impossible anyway. Was Earl Taylor involved in his wife's death? One thing makes me think that he, he was and that he never reported Barbara missing. Uh, but if he 
really had ran away or she had really ran away and met her fate at the hands of somebody else, then he could be totally innocent. In the end, the greatest mystery of the tent girl was answered. She now rests back in the graveyard in Georgetown where she was buried 50-some years ago. Only difference now is that she rests under her name, Barbara Hackman Taylor. Well, I hope you enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast. and thank That helps so much. Thank you so much for your subscription to help keep the stories coming. Please join us on Facebook group, Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast, where we can discuss everything Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. I'll be back soon with another Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend, and I'll see you then. Thank <laughs> you.